Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Good morning, church. Merry Christmas. As, as I was considering this morning, what I might want to share for a Christmas message. Something that, that has struck me often is many of the songs that we sing, many of the wonderful Christmas carols and, and songs that we routinely hear start being played in malls on November 1st, the minute that it strikes midnight after Halloween. Many of those songs inform much of the traditions that we celebrate. So I'm going to ask for a moment of honesty from all of those of you in attendance on this very hallowed day, okay? Moment of honesty. Does anyone enjoy the Christmas song, We Three Kings? Hands up. Don't be, don't be scared. Okay. My wife is one of those people, so you're in good company. If you, if you, don't, in, if you don't appreciate me after this service, that's okay. I'm about to ruin your, your, your favorite Christmas song, okay? Um... The other, just a little addendum that, that I'll mention, I was told that I was being given heckling for Christmas this year from my boss, and as my boss told me this, my wife seemed really interested in that idea, so if you hear heckling during the service from this corner down over here, that's just my Christmas present being unwrapped in front of you. So, that, so that's, how, that's what that is. But many of the songs that we sing at Christmas, they are reminders that this time of year is supposed to be happy. They are reminders, songs like It's a Wonderful Time of Year, Have a Holly Jolly Christmas, Ch uh, roasting chest Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, Jingle Bells, or Walking in a Winter Wonderland. Do you notice that there is a common theme among secular Christmas songs that echo many of the faith traditions in our, our, our Christian Christmas songs? The carols that we sing, they share a lot of similarities with secular music around the holidays, and that is because they echo the same sentiments. They echo joy and merriment. They echo the feelings that we bring out in celebration of Christ. They're just missing that part. But let me ask you this honestly. Is that what you're experiencing this year? Are you experiencing joy? Are you experiencing wonderment? Are you experiencing peace? Are you enjoying a silent night? For some of you, personal problems may be keeping you from this experience. For others, you might feel like it's just one crisis after another and they're running you over. With such an avalanche of problems, it can sometimes be very difficult to have a holly jolly Christmas. Some of you are so busy working so hard that there is no time for sitting around roasting chestnuts. Or maybe there is not anything really wrong, but for some reason there's just a distinct lack of joy this time of year. For some of us, we may be grieving, and that might just be making Christmas a little more difficult. Maybe Christmas isn't providing the emotional uplift that we expect. In fact, maybe it's a little depressing this time of year for some of us. The world doesn't look like a winter wonderland. It does for us this year. That's wonderful. But as we all know in Calgary, sometimes it can look like anything but a winter wonderland this time of year. Disillusionment at Christmas is not an unusual thing. 
We often get so hyped up with the expectations of what Christmas could be, of what Christmas can be, that we sometimes forget about what Christmas is, and the real thing just doesn't measure up, and we, we become disappointed. So what can we do with this Christmas to avoid disillusionment? How can we improve maybe our level of joy that we're going to experience this Christmas day as we hopefully leave here and enjoy time with friends and family? Well, the answer is found in the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi that came from the east, they saw a star that indicated the birth of a new king in Israel. And wanting to honor him with gifts, they set out on a journey following the star to find this newborn king. And from the attitudes of these magi and the events that take place around this story, we can see and learn how to raise our level of joy at Christmas. So I want to read for you that story today. It's found in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star in the east, or we have saw saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And here he quotes the prophet Micah. And he says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you the least among the leaders of Judah. From you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star first appeared. So he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went on ahead of them until it came to stop over the place where the child was to be found. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after they came into the house and they saw the child and his mother, Mary, they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their country by another way. It's a wonderful story. The only issue is the Magi are not a part of your nativity scene. It's a bummer, I know. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to let you know, but the Magi did not arrive the night Christ was born. As the story tells us, they entered the house sometime after where the mother lay and the child was with her. And so the story of the Magi is not necessarily the story that we sometimes think of. For instance, they weren't wise men. You might call them wise guys, right? Three wise guys. They were the the median Magi, right? Wise guys. See, Paul, I told you that joke was going to fall flat. They They didn't get it. Median mafia. Median Mafia. The, the Magi, so we're going we're gonna to take Christmas morning and you're going to get a bit of a social studies lesson. If you thought you were going to enjoy Christmas morning, I'm ruining it entirely because you're going to get a bit of a social studies lesson. 
but the Magi that came and visited Jesus, they are central figures, and they teach us a lot of who Jesus is to the world. Because who were the Magi? Well, they were not kings. They were not wise men. They were Magi. And you might be asking, well, who were the Magi? They were from a long historical line, a tribe of the Medes. And the Medes in the Orient East were a historic tribe. They were around in Egypt during the exile. They were around in Babylon in the exile. They were around and they were a part of history for thousands of years. Now, there are many absurd traditions and guesses in regards to the Magi, and they have found their way into pop culture, as we have seen in in the song even, We Three Kings, and they've made their way into Christian art, like our nativity scenes. They were said to have been kings and three in number, but we don't know that. It's said that they are representatives of three families, those families being Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's been attached to them over the, the eons and the years. And that is actually why one of them is traditionally pictured as an Ethiopian in, in uh, popular art, because of where those tribes came from, those family names. They've been actually given names, the individuals, Casper, Balthazar, and Melchor, those you might have heard before. Maybe you've heard that. And I kid you not, we believe, or so a historian in the church believed, that we found their three skulls once upon a time. And if you think I'm joking, you can go to Cologne, Germany, to a cathedral, and see them. Not the actual skulls. They're in a nice little case and crafted in gold. But we believe that that they're there. Bishop Rinald of Cologne was the one that first found them in the 12th century. He dug them up and remarked upon finding them that their eyes were still fixed in their sockets and fixed towards Bethlehem. What a wonderful picture. But it gets better. Today, believe it or not, again, you can go see them and see if their eyes are still fixed on Bethlehem. You, you go do that, let me know how that is. But what do we really know? So much of our tra- tradition can impact our beliefs, and our beliefs shape the way we read stories, and it shapes the way we read Scripture. So we have this story from Matthew, and that's the only written account we have of these individuals visiting Jesus. We have other instances of the Magi in Scripture, in Daniel, as, as he's meeting with the king. So we can draw conclusions from, from other places of Scripture and learn more about the Magi. And we can learn from others in history who have recorded important information about who the Magi were. As I mentioned, the Magi were, a, they were likely a group called the Medes, with history tracing their origins to the time of Abraham when he was called out of Ur, You can go look at Genesis 12 for that passage of Scripture. So, they are slightly older than Paul, just slightly. They've been around a long time. Magi, they were a priestly line. You might not have known that. A priestly tribe of the Medes, very similar to the Levitical tribe in Israel. They had a long-standing fascination and skill in astronomy and astrology. They were preoccupied with it, and their line held that fascination for over a thousand years. As I mentioned, the Magi were in Babylon during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, likely in the employ of the king himself, and they would have come into contact with Daniel as they're trying to interpret the king's dreams. Herodotus, an ancient Greek historian, actually talked about them numerous times. 
During the Babylonian world empire, they were a significant force in the world. During the Medo-Persian empire, they were a significant force in the world. During the Greek and even the Roman empire, the Medes and the Magi played a significant part in something called kingmaking, where the Magi would be employed by the leaders or rulers of, of a kingdom, and they would help distinguish who was to become king. And so much value and worth was placed in the words of the Magi that they held their power for thousands of years. We can see, even in the Greek Empire, when it was in vogue, there was still Eastern culture and power. Even when the Roman Empire was in vogue, there was a certain Eastern power at present in in that empire. There was an influence that Eastern culture had, even as their empires expanded into the known world. And in both of these periods, the Magi were really the key people in the government of the East, of the Orient. Centered in the Fertile Crescent, the area around Babylon and Medo-Persia, they've always had tremendous political power. Now, this is very important. You're going to have a little history lesson within a history lesson. They always appear with tremendous political power. And I would say the majority of historians, at least the ones that I am familiar with and the ones that I have read, the ones that I have referred to, They see the Magi as an Eastern people who rose by virtue of their very unique priestly function, by their unique, rather, occultic powers of divination, by their astrological and astronomical knowledge, they rose to these places of prominence. And they rose up in the Babylonian government, they rose up in the Medo-Persian government, they even rose up in the Roman government. They were to be advisors to the royalty of the East. Because the Roman Empire was so large at the time of Christ that even in Israel, it was not under direct occupation. It was a vassal state, which means that Herod, the king, was put in charge of Israel as a puppet governor. He was ruling Israel as a semi-free state, where Rome was not directly interfering, but allowing Herod to rule on behalf of the emperor. And that's why he was very unsettled by the Magi appearing. The Magi were searching for the king of the Jews. Herod's title was king of the Jews. So when he hears that these Magi, these kingmakers of the Orient, have ventured into Israel and they are looking for the king of the Jews, he must surely be thinking to himself, I'm right here. I'm in the palace. Come find me. But when he discovers that they're looking for someone else, his power is being usurped. And he's very unsettled by this. It says all of Jerusalem was unsettled. Jerusalem understood that they've just gone through war. They've just gone through years and years of turmoil. They don't want any more of this. The Magi had other fascinating characteristics. We don't know for sure why, but perhaps there is a, there's an indication that as Magi and their religious activities, they had a priesthood, a function uh, as, as priests, and the principal element of their worship was fire. It's apparent from history that we know they worshipped or revered fire, and we don't know why for sure, but that there is some connection to, to God, that their worship of fire was a religious practice. They were monotheistic. They believed in a singular God. 
they just called him by a different name. So they had that in common with Israel and the tribes of Judah. They believed that the perpetual flame was actually kindled by God from heaven. And so they had this perpetual flame altar, and in their temples, wherever they they had, there was these altars where they would offer sacrifices, very similar to, to to the Israelites. And they lit fire to burn the sacrifices with flame off of the perpetual altar. And when they had offered their sacrifices, this is very interesting, the victim was then taken by the worshiper and the priests and laid to rest. What's fascinating about this is that it's a, it's a, there's direct parallels to Judaism. We can see how all the way back to Satan, he was counterfeiting true religion from the very beginning. There is a priestly tribe, not unlike the Levites, who simply have a different name for God and they're worshiping something not quite God. So religion has been perverted to something other than what the Israelites worshiped. But it was paralleled through many different societies. Even today, there is a very real Christianity and then there is phony Christianity. There is Christianity as we know being found in the birth of Christ, offering salvation as he dies on a cross many years later. And then there's Christianity that slowly allows its values to be stripped away where we may say we worship God, but our actions show otherwise. The Magi were so powerful that historians actually tell us that there was no Persian that was ever able to become king. The Persian Empire never had a, had a king. Now watch this. Never able to become king except under two conditions. One, a Persian king had to master the scientific and religious, uh, the religious uh, aspects of a Magi, the religious discipline of a Magi. And two, he had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. That was the only way a Persian could become king. That is what I call power. You had to become the Magi of Magi to become king of the Persians. Do you know what they called the wisdom of the Magi? They had a name for it. The name, was, the name for this was this. The law of the Medes and the Persians. That law was the law or the code that defined all Magi. And if you want to see that phrase... It's actually found in Scripture, in Esther, chapter 1, verse 19. You can go look it up. It's also found in Daniel chapter 6 a couple of times. The law of the Medes and the Persians was the code, it was the scientific discipline of all magi, and their wisdom was that which was required for anyone to be a monarch. Additionally, historians tell us that they controlled the judicial office as well as the kingly office. So magi had their influence everywhere within their culture. Now I want to move to the time of Jesus. Look with me at the story of Matthew 2, the scripture that we read earlier. Time has come by, centuries have moved on, century after century until Jesus is to be born. Somehow, and by some marvelous way, God has managed to to maintain some true seeking magi. There are some magi that are still seeking the one true God. So let me set the stage. Politically speaking, Rome was scared of the Eastern Empire. 
Rome did not like the power that was apparent in the Orient. And this is why when we, when we read in verse 3 of Matthew 2, it says, when Herod the king had heard of these things, he was troubled. They don't want the eastern influence reaching towards Rome. Herod did not want his title as king of the Jews taken away. That was a title that he received from the Caesar Augustus. So this massive, this massive faction within the Persian Empire, these magi that wield untold influence and power over governments and kingships, are now seeking Christ. So they say, we're coming to find the new king. And at that time, it's, it's understood Herod was potentially close to death. He was getting up there in age. And Caesar Augustus was also a very old man. He was an old empire, also only a couple years away from dying. And since the retirement only a couple years previous of Tiberius, the Roman general, famous Roman general, who accomplished much of the conquering of the Middle East, the Roman, em- the Roman Empire and the Roman army didn't even have a commander-in-chief. And they knew that this was the right time to bring about an eastern war against the vassal state of Israel. This is why Herod is scared, because he knows he has no support coming from Rome. And his power is being usurped. So that's the Magi. That is their importance, their impact upon history, and it adds to the significance of this story because we have the Magi venturing into a foreign land to proclaim a new king. And that was no small thing for the Magi to do. They are wielding their power. They're attaching their name to this. If all of a sudden they strike out and this king of the Jews proves to be false, their name is now being impugned. So anytime they made a declaration, they're doing it with all of the influence that they hold. So I think there are three lessons that we can learn from this story in Matthew. Three lessons that I think we can learn from the Magi. The first lesson is this. What do you seek? The Magi were seeking for God. They were seeking for the Lord, the King of the Jews. So I would ask the question, what is it that you want to get out of Christmas? What is it that would make your Christmas truly wonderful and satisfying and bring about a level of joy that you sometimes only think about? Is it snow? I hope, I hope not. Really hope not. Is it all your family together? That's a wonderful thing, but sometimes it's very difficult to accomplish. Is it a feeling you define as the holiday spirit, that elusive holiday spirit? We only know it when we feel it, but we don't know quite how to get there. Is it finding the right present to give your spouse? That elusive present that you just can't find until Christmas Eve after the service when you stop by the mall before those doors close? Is it getting the present you've been hoping for? You know that present that you've somehow found kind of little hints to to give all the way from February until December? You just keep dropping the hints, you write it on little notes, you maybe leave a website page open for that perfect gift hoping your spouse sees it? Kids do a really good job of that, right? They let us know exactly what gifts they want. The problem with all of these is they can leave us disappointed. See, the Magi sought something else. And worship, worship is what drove the Magi to visit Jesus. 
Their journey was long, took them months, maybe years. But their focus was on finding and worshiping Jesus. And it was so intense that they followed through on it. In the busyness of Christmas season, the Christmas season, we may find ourselves focused intently, but on the wrong idea. The example of the Magi can challenge our personal worship of the King, not just at Christmas, but every day and week of the year. Sunday morning, this time that we set aside to worship the King as a body of Christ, can be especially stressful, and our focus can easily be distracted from worshiping the King. Coming to, coming to church on Christmas Day, I'm sure all of us had something in the back of our heads as we were driving to Bethany this morning going, oh, I need to get this done. Oh, I haven't finished this yet. Got to get the turkey in the oven. Got to wrap presents. Got to do this. Got to do this. Got to do this. How many of us walked through the doors this morning with the sole intention and focus of just worshiping our king? As a pastor, that's a struggle for me sometimes. There can be so many distractions because this is my place of work and there's emails and text messages and things I need to finish, and it can be sometimes very difficult to remind myself to focus on worshiping the king. In Matthew 2, the story opens with the Magi traveling a long distance for the opportunity to worship the king. And we learn that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and and the star appears, and they set out to find Jesus, they do it so they can worship him. The Magi were on search, they were on the search for the king. The Magi show us how to increase our level of joy at Christmas by looking to the right thing. When they come and they find Jesus, they finally get to Bethlehem over their long trek and they find the king that they've been so longingly searching for, they, they sit down and they worship him. And not just in any normal way, but by offering gifts, significant, expensive gifts that you would have provided to a king. They are honoring him. They are bringing the best of the best to a baby because they recognize his power and the impact that he will have. That is what we need to be looking for. That is what we need to be expecting this Christmas. The experience of worship, a fresh glimpse of who, he, of who Jesus is, to us. Do we worship Jesus as a king or do we just worship Jesus as something less than? Do we bring our best worship to him or do we bring simply an acceptable gift? Something that we've purchased at the last minute that we're hoping convinces Jesus that we really love him. If our goal this Christmas is to worship Jesus, then I doubt very serious we'll be dissatisfied with our experience. Second thing we can learn from this story is where do we look? Where do you look? When it comes time for Christmas season and you see all the lights start popping up, the decorations coming out, right? You see the city start throwing wreaths up on lampshades and and the malls get the trees up and we see the signs. Again, I I swear, the moment the clock hits midnight after Halloween, decorations just magically appear places. So where do you look? 
The Magi, again, they finally arrive in Jerusalem, and as they walk through the streets, they are asking everyone they meet where the king of the Jews can be found. Matthew tells us that Herod the king was not very happy about this, right? And neither was all of Jerusalem. Since this visit was at least a few months after Jesus was born, one thing that everyone would know was where the king was born. We would assume people would have heard about Jesus by this time or knew where Mary had given birth. Instead of feeling excited, the people were troubled. And this was probably not the magi were expecting upon arriving in Bethlehem. In a hurried fashion, Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders of their day, asking them where the king of the Jews was to be found. Where was he born? Where is this king? And this is one of those questions that can answer with certainty since the Bible tells us. They quote from Micah 5 a prophecy uttered a few hundred years before the actual events that take place. And we learn from the Magi that they are wrong and there are wrong and right places to look for Christmas. They started by looking in the wrong place. They looked where their own human reasoning said they should look. Where did they go? They went to Jerusalem. They went to the capital. They went to the palace. Because that's where they would have expected a king to be born. They relied on their own human reasoning. The star indicated the birth of a new king in Israel, and the Magi went where kings should be born, to the palace of Herod in the capital. But it was a mistake, because when Herod heard about this, he jealously sought to destroy them. We too are tempted to look for joy at Christmas in the wrong places. We think by getting or giving the right gift, we can find that elusive Christmas spirit and satisfaction. We imagine that being with family will be joyful, right? There's no stress spending time with family at Christmas. You may not be able to afford the right gift for a loved one. Family members may be missing from your holiday celebration. So if you're looking for these things for your joy and Christmas spirit... There's no wonder that we are left with a sense of disillusionment and disappointment. The Magi ended up at the right place when they looked to God. The trip to Jerusalem was not a total loss because while they were there, they discovered where they should have looked in the first place, the Bible. The scribes in Jerusalem said that according to the prophet Micah, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. With this new information, they looked again at the star and followed it to Bethlehem until it stood over the house where the child Jesus lived. Where are we looking? Is Jesus the first place that we look when we are searching answers, when we are searching for the joy of Christmas? Or are we looking to something else? Third thing, what do you give What do you give at Christmas? Your level of joy at Christmas is directly related to what you give. As the Magi continue their journey to worship the king, the star they saw moves and settles over Bethlehem. And while we cannot be uh, precise about the star's identity, we don't know what star it was, we do know, we do know that it was supernatural. This star moved and led them to Bethlehem. Led them to the king of the Jews. 
The text also indicates that the star continued to appear nightly because the Magi are exceedingly joyful at its reappearance. Every night as the stars come out, they're excited to see the star because it is the only thing guiding them. The Magi, using this uh, divine GPS system, find Jesus with Mary, his mother, at home. And these details provide us clear information relative to the timing of the event. The Magi do not find a baby, but a child. He is not in a manger or a stable, but in a home. And so the Magi come and they give Jesus gifts, right? We talked about this. The gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. He's giving them profoundly important gifts that worship him, that recognize his kingship. They gave gold. Gold was a gift for a king. Gold was hard to come by. They they acknowledged that Jesus was and is the king. They gave frankincense. Frankincense was typically a gift for a priest. This was incense the priests used in the temple. And by giving it, they acknowledged that Jesus was a priest, the one who would bring us to God. They gave myrrh. Myrrh was a gift for the dead. This was a fragrant ointment used to anoint the body before burial. Myrrh was quite expensive and typically only reserved for those instances. By giving it, they acknowledged that Jesus had come to die for the sins of the world. And we ought to give appropriate gifts this Christmas as well. Don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about material gifts. I'm talking about more important things. I'm talking about more important things than the Keurig machine waiting for you wrapped under the tree. I love coffee, but there's more important things than coffee. We ought to give the gift of our love and our kindness to our friends and family. We ought to give the gift of help to those who are hurting. We ought to give the gift of forgiveness to those who have hurt us. Giving these kinds of gifts will result in a more joyous and meaningful Christmas. As you sit here this morning on Christmas Day, what are you giving Did you give any thought to it this year about what you were to give? There's a couple applications that I think that we can take from this. To answer the question, what are you seeking? Seek relationships that draw you closer to God. There's a very critical reason why we are supposed to be in community as believers. And that is because they can bring us closer. People can bring us closer in our relationship to God. Seek forgiveness from those that you've wronged. Christmas is a wonderful time of year. There's no better time to seek those out, to repair relationships. And seek unity with those around you. Something that I found often elusive in a post-COVID world with no shortage of disagreements over what to do and where to go and how to do it. Allowing the love of Christ to transform us to a place where we can find unity with those around us. Not agreement, but unity. Where do you look? Well, where should we look? Look towards the guiding star. Where is the guiding star in your life? Do you have a guiding star in your life? Is that Christ or is it something else? Are you following a path that leads you away from Bethlehem? away from Christ, away from the life that God is seeking for you. Look to what has been promised. 
The Bible is full of promises, promises that are still yet to come to fruition, promises that we can rely on, promises that we can see that God has something for us, a life that he, he wants for us, the promise of Christ, the promise that is there because Christ came, was born, and died for our sins. Look towards the King. And what are you giving this year? Well, consider giving your time to your family. I don't know what that looks like for you, but there is something that I have considered more this year than maybe any other time as I, as I have wrestled with family members who have fallen ill. And I have had to reconcile in my own heart just how much time am I willing to give to my family to my friends, to my loved ones, the ones that I cherish, the ones that I probably should be spending more time with, but I am distracted by pursuits that don't feed into my life and probably pursuits that lead me further away from Jesus than closer to it. Consider giving compassion to the hurting. Christmas is a wonderful season. I find that there is no better time of year for me to approach those that I know that don't know Jesus. Because there is something unique about Christmas and the Christmas spirit that allows conversations about Christ to occur. Consider giving your compassion to those hurting, those suffering, and those that don't know Jesus. And finally, consider giving your heart to Jesus. There is no better time of year for a reminder that your eternal life, our salvation, our entire belief as Christians is found in the story of Christmas. That we have salvation because of God's story and God's plan. And so often our hearts can lead us away from Christ. So consider giving your heart to Jesus again this year. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the birth of your son. I thank you that you brought Jesus into this world. God, I thank you that you brought the Magi to Christ to worship him, to honor him, and to recognize him as king. God, I'm so thankful that these three Gentiles came and acknowledged Christ as a child and recognized his kingship. So God, this morning I pray that all of us here would recognize Christ's kingship in our lives, in our world. And I pray that as we go out and we spend time with our family and friends, that we would be ambassadors of Christ to them. That we would be a guiding star in their lives and bring them closer to your son. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.